This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about money, boys! Here we go again. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the, our brand new show, Franchise Fatigue. I'm your host, Gabe Green, and with me is a very swell fellow, James Hamrick. How's it going? Pretty good. I'm pretty excited to be doing this. I've been looking forward to the change of pace, and I think this is going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, this has been in the works for a long time. It's, it, I guess you know, franchises are something both of us are very passionate about. Um, so what this uh, this new podcast or show is going to be about is we will be taking... We'll be picking a franchise, uh, in this case, Indiana Jones, and then just going through it film by film and, and exploring it um, both, you know, in its from its inception to the, all the behind the scenes stories and then uh, then move into, you know, an actual review of the film itself and close with a, uh, you know, this discussion of the film's legacy, uh, you know, in pop culture and just culture at large. I, I think it's going it's to be really fun because there's so I think there's so much to explore with each and every franchise, you know, especially since, you know, there's a common, obviously the, the, the very term franchise fatigue, this seems to be a, a movement in film nowadays to try and get back to, you know, original content. And I think while, I, while I definitely applaud that, I think there's, there can be a notion to, to just dismiss uh, franchise films because they're in a franchise. And I, I think that's definitely selling short uh, what, what you know? What a good franchise can be, and what it can do for a culture, and just you know how, how much joy it can bring. But also, we want to explore you know some some bad franchises as well, because there are definitely a lot of those, and the stigma is pretty well earned at times. Yeah, I, I mean, there's always pros and cons to everything, and you know, one of the things people say that television has over movies is that you know it, it's it's longer running, so you get to grow more attached to characters, and I think that's. That's one thing that I do like about franchises is you have more than a film to grow characters. Um, and so it, it, it really is easy to try to dismiss them and, you know, cite it all as like just a, a lack of originality and things like that. But sometimes I, I really like being able to almost grow up or, um, or watch these characters grow themselves. You know, you hear all the stories of, people who started out as kids watching the first Harry Potter and they literally aged with the characters in the film. So, um, by the way, why haven't you read Harry Potter yet? I, <laughs> I will get there. I promise. But I don't know. I think there's, there's a lot of good things that can come about from franchises. And so, uh, I'm excited to talk about that as well as talking about all the, all of the bad films that franchises have given us. Yeah, uh, one thing that I really want to do in this in this show that we didn't do it underrated was you know dive into the behind the scenes story of each film because especially I think in franchise you know where, like when a chapter goes wrong so much of that you you can kind of find <laughs> in choices that were made you know in the making of the film and and the same way when when something goes right I, I just find it very fascinating to explore how each and every idea you know affected the final product. Or and just how the series grew or diminished over the years. Um, so I guess if you got any of you guys are coming over from our <laughs> underrated podcast, uh, welcome back. This is uh, I, I, I do want to keep you know the same kind of uh, very I guess 
as objective as possible in how we judge these films, you know, trying, trying to get past expectations, trying to get past, you know, personal preferences, just to, you know, explore what these films are and, you know, their, their inherent qualities or lack thereof. Um, I think it's just, I think there's a real lack of that in uh, film discussion. Well, well, I mean, obviously your know, personal preferences and all that have a, a, a very important place. I think sometimes it can overshadow the discussion where people say, Oh, this is a film is bad. This is great. Just because of how they felt about it rather than, you know, just, you know, why, why is, why is this film good? Why is this film bad? Uh, I, I, that's a discussion that always, uh, I think interests me over a bit more over, you know, just, uh, whether or not you like a film. And, uh, so today we are for our first episode, we are going to the Indiana Jones series and starting with the first, uh, feature in that the Raiders of the Lost Ark or actually just, just Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, but before we do that, uh, I'd like to ask you guys, you know, if, if you enjoy the show and you, that you would go and give us a rating and review on iTunes and, you know, f- like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Um, all right, let's just dive right into this, uh, to the, this film, uh, going into just the behind the scenes story. The original idea was from, uh, George Lucas in uh, 1973, he wrote a treatment, uh, or a draft or something called the adventures of Indiana Smith. Uh, he kind of designed it to be a callback to these, uh, you know, this adventure serials that he grew up watching. Uh, but he eventually shelved the idea and then started working on Star Wars, um, which was also a callback to the serials he saw as a kid. Um, it's uh, kind of funny how, how many of the great groundbreaking works are kind of callbacks to uh, older stories. Uh, again, you know, the importance of franchises. It was after um, he had he had finished he had finished the first Star Wars and uh, Luke and uh, Steven Spielberg had just finished Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and uh, they were on they were in Hawaii and this story as the story goes they were uh, on the beach making a sandcastle which is just a, <laughs> a really perfect picture when uh, Lucas first um, pitched the idea of Indiana Jones to Spielberg um, and so yeah Spielberg he didn't like the name Smith and he went with uh, Jones which I think is a um, Definitely a much more apt title, and uh, a funny thing about you know in the in the Last Crusade they talk about how Indiana was uh, named after the dog, or the dog's name was Indiana, and that's actually true. George Lucas's dog was Indiana, it's this, and it's the same dog that um, was the inspiration for Chewbacca. It's funny how like a lot of these ideas kind of end up being traced back to very personal things about Lucas, like he's. He's very, he, there's a lot of him in the story. And I hear that a lot from interviews with him and both, both about Indiana Jones and Star Wars is that his stories are all, he finds ways to make them as personal as possible. Yeah, him and Spielberg make a great team. I think that their sensibility, well, Spielberg is, is you know, undeniably the better director. I think their sensibilities line up very well. Yeah. And uh, something else that I thought was, just kind of an interesting tidbit about the creation was um, Spielberg was originally wanting to do a Bond film. Um, I can't remember what the last Bond movie would have been at the time of, I guess, the late 70s when these ideas were first happening. Um, but he had he had talked to Lucas about that, about wanting to do um, one of those, if at all possible. And Lucas... Um, if it if it happened the way it kind of seemed to happen according to George Lucas, he had been very he just kind of nonchalantly said, "Oh, don't worry about that. I got something better." <laughs> um, and he presented the story of in, I get at the time Indiana Smith. I, I don't 
I, w- I wonder how much of that you know explains the similarities between you know Bond and Indiana Jones. You know the very serialized nature, the kind of <laughs> a bit of a womanizing playboy. Just the structurally, there seems to be a bit of a kind of an overlap in that area. Yeah, you got your very iconic villains who have something distinct about them. There's definitely a lot of similarities. It's almost a perfect blend of like the movies that were coming out at the time with you know the adventure serials of the past um and so it's just funny that lucas having i I guess the confidence had been earned you know coming off of um star wars and so you know if if filming what inspired him or filming star wars which was inspired by serials worked once then he said i'll do it again and i'll I'll get Steven to film this one and that's that's how it ended up happening. So, but now I can't help but wonder what a, a Bond movie directed by Spielberg would have looked like cuz that would have been interesting. Uh, that's that's probably not not off the table anyway. I mean, I'm sure they they would be thrilled to have him come on. Um so yeah, uh a- after that then after he got Spielberg on board, Lucas went and hired Lawrence Kasdan to uh, write the script for them. And they, they, they all three of them uh, Lucas Kasdan and Spielberg collaborated very closely in just the the way they uh, made the story, they 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 wove all the action beats and, and storyboards into the script. I think that that definitely helps with the pacing and flow of the film. Is it was it was a very close collaboration between you know, the director and uh, of what they wanted with this series with the writer, and I think it obviously turned out very uh, well. And uh, Lucas obviously enjoyed working with him because he then brought Kazan on to write Empire Strikes Back for them, and Kazan's still uh, writing for um for Star Wars now. And that's what's interesting is there's essentially nothing but endless praise for Raiders of the Lost Ark, but Kasdan's name is typically brought up exclusively with Star Wars. Um, but yeah, I, I, it wasn't even until just recently that I discovered he he actually wrote the screenplay for Raiders. So uh, most uh, studios at first you know turned down the idea. They they didn't want to invest a $20 million that Lucas was asking for into it. But then eventually a Paramount did pick it up. Uh, the filming began in the uh, summer of 1980, uh, and uh, Spielberg brought on uh, Douglas Slocum as the director of photography. He had uh, been, a, I think, a, he had been a camera operator, I believe, on Close Encounters. Uh, the most of the film was shot at Elstree Studios in England. Uh, the opening jungle scenes were filmed in Kauai, Hawaii. Um, most of the desert scenes were filmed in Tunisia, this you know the same basic area as uh, Tatooine. Uh, the, you know the scene where. Um, where the where a threat Indiana Indiana stands up on the uh, cliff face and threatens to blow up the Ark, that's the exact same canyon that uh, the Jawas captured R two D two. And you're never going to be able to see either scene the same way again. Yeah, what uh, what a really cool fact I found in the um in the behind the scenes stuff was that the the U boat that they used was actually rented from the Das Boot production, um, and the uh, the the Nazi U boat pen they used for the film it was an actual uh actual German uh, submarine uh, pen from World War II in France. It, what's in, it's always interesting to me, looking up, in, like going deeper into the production of films, how often things are kind of borrowed. Because obviously, if you're going to be working in Hollywood for a while, relationships are going to be formed. And there's, there's a lot of moments like this where you find like, oh, that same set there or this prop here, it was actually used over here. Uh, and so, yeah, they they just took the same U-boat and changed some of the numbers, and nobody really knew knew anything happened. Nobody was the wiser. 
Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, Lucas actually did some, uh, you know, s- kind of second unit and uh, secondary camera direction during the uh, production. And uh, there's one funny thing that I, he seems to be really proud of. It comes up in all the special features that the uh, the, the monkey Nazi salute was his idea. <laughs> he's, he's really proud of it. You can, he's always talking about it in all the, in all the behind the scenes features. And it's uh, Spielberg even kind of brings that up as one of his favorite little moments across the series where it just if you could pick out one isolated little thing that happens that you see he always he too brings up the fact that we had a movie where a monkey did the hell hitler <laughs> like it's just such a funny thing um and yeah that that's what i love about um spielberg's relationship with lucas was that they kind of just seem like two boys having fun with a camera um uh, Mm-hmm. And I could just imagine Lucas being like, hey, I'm going to make this monkey do the Hail Hitler. And Spielberg like, no way, just kind of laughing at each other. And Spielberg always brings up, he's like, on the set across all the films, Lucas was always quick to have some sort of what he described as nutty ideas that somehow miraculously work in the context. And that a lot of the funny and great moments across the whole series are results of Lucas just being like, you know, it'd be funny. And then saying whatever crazy, crazy idea he had at the time. Yeah, and, and the entire the the idea of this the entire the supernatural elements that are in all, all of the Indiana Jones films were actually completely from Lucas. You know, he he wanted to add that to you know kind of differentiate um, itself from, I guess other other uh, venture films, and that's what one thing I do want to talk about. I think the uh, the whole supernatural spirituality of the film is very interesting. Um, then another thing that stood out to me was that uh, the kind of the the way the method that Spielberg brought to, in his direction of this film, his uh, three previous films, Jaws, 1941, and Close Encounters of the Third Kind, had all gone way over budget and schedule when he was filming, and he was he was afraid he was going to develop you know this reputation as a problem director. Um, so going into Raiders, he said he was he was really determined to shoot as quickly as possible, like doing minimal takes and just you know get it done on time under budget, and you can really feel that in the film. There's a very just kind of scrappy tone that I think pervades the whole thing. And especially in like Indiana as a character that it just fits really well with the story they're telling. And unfortunately, I think it does lead to one of my issues, which is that I think the action in this, while kind of iconic in its staging and the set pieces is, is sometimes kind of choppy, uh, one scene in particular that is kind of, I think, problematic is the the whole the, the scene in the market where the assassins all come and attack Indiana and Marion. Um, you, I think you could really tell he was shooting this fast. Like the choreography is not very good. Like this one scene where where Indiana's fighting in the foreground, in the background, Marion's like very lightly tapping uh, one of the assassins with a box on the head. It's just you know he, he said that he said that he actually said when he got to editing. He realized he was missing a lot of shots and inserts that he wanted, and you can you can you can kind of feel it. And I think part of that does lead to the charm of the entire film, but uh, you know the meticulous style you see in Jaws and Close Encounters isn't it's not as prevalent in this film. Was that something that stood out to you? Yeah, and th- glad you brought up that scene in particular because I think, um, and this is usually something that you're you know really quick to point out is. Uh, the way the geography, like the geography of that whole scene just kind of feels as if we're not seeing the whole picture. 
And I, I feel that, and you know, that he probably didn't get some shots meant to kind of cut between the the character moments of the scene because it, it it kind of feels like we're cutting from this corner of the market to this corner of the market to this street to this mar- like it, it very much feels like he shot about 90 percent of the scene and stitched it together as best he could and it ends up creating an you know an iconic scene that i love but it, yeah. it doesn't flow perfectly and I, it's somewhere where you don't have a a great grasp of where the scene is spatially but but the, the just the way he stages action is is iconic even though if it's if it's kind of flawed like there's so many great moments from that you know where uh, uh obviously indiana shoots the shoots the guy with the sword <laughs> or when marion runs into the building and the guy runs after it and you just hear the bang of the pot on his head or just wait indiana runs out into the street and it's just all kinds of all the, just all the baskets you see <laughs> Um, there's just so many great moments within it that it just kind of overcomes, you know, some of the more, uh, I don't know, if slop, maybe sloppy direction or just kind of uh, un- incomplete filmmaking there. And and you also you notice that a bit in the, the fight in the bar, feel even though it's really beautifully staged and shot, you still just feel kind of very deliberate in how it moves. Um, which actually brings me to so that a really interesting thing I found out was that. Uh, Spielberg actually didn't direct the more, like the most iconic action scene in that series, which is the you know the famous uh, truck chase. That was actually done by uh, mo- almost entirely done by the second unit director Mickey Moore, um, working off Spielberg's obviously very meticulous storyboards. And part of me wonders if that's if that's not why that scene is so perfectly done. Um, it, it it feels far more polished than all the other action scenes in that in that uh, in the film. So I'm kind of wondering if, you know, he obviously working off Spielberg's storyboards, you know, was able to, you know, get all the shots he needed and build it a bit better than Spielberg was when he was trying, when he was rushing through his scenes. Yeah. And then kind of something else interesting about that same scene as well was that that scene was in it from like the very inception of the story because Lucas had said it, it seemed like every episode of every show he had ever watched as a kid ended with a truck chase and someone jumping on from one truck to another and he said well, we got to get that in somehow so from the very the earliest forms of the draft there was always going to be a moment where uh indy was going to have to jump onto a truck during this huge elaborate chase scene and it's amazing uh and as far as the post-production um obviously industrial light and magic provided visual effects because George Lucas and uh, Ben Burt, who's a, just a legendary sound designer, did all the sound for the film. And obviously John Williams did the iconic score. Um, and originally the film was given an R rating due to when up Belloc's head explodes. So they just kind of overlaid some fire effects and then it was fine. And they got a PG. Um, <laughs> but I don't know. I don't know about you, but that, the, the guy's face melting was, far far more disturbing to me as a child than uh Belloc exploding yeah that that always kind of I, I didn't I, first of all I wasn't allowed to watch that scene as a kid um <laughs> until I kind of snuck behind the couch and watched it anyways uh and quickly learned what my parents were sheltering me from because it definitely got to me as a kid uh but these movies have always had such a well at least the first two have had an interesting relationship with the MPAA, and obviously we'll we'll talk more about that with um, the next installment. 
But it, it's funny how like hands-on they had to get with the ratings board that actually having to have conversations and things like that. Like, okay, well, we've legitimately been told we have to change something about this if we're going to get that PG rating. Yeah. All right, so that'll be a kind of got the behind-the-scenes story of how this film got here. What do you think about this movie, James? It's all right. Yeah, it was okay. All right, um, you ready to close now? <laughs> yeah. Next week, we'll talk about the really good one. <laughs> no, um, obviously... This movie has completely earned its reputation. Um, aside from kind of our problems with the directing, I feel like I only have to bring that up just because it, you know, it's it's a part of the behind the scenes, which is something we really wanted to talk about, and you can kind of notice it in certain aspects. But really, apart from that, there's almost nothing negative I have to say about this movie. Um, in almost every other aspect, it's it's pretty much perfect. Yeah, um, there's just so many things this film does right. Um, it's just the the main character of Indiana Jones is is so wonderful, and this is something that's really popular at that time period. You know, kind of like the, the noir type heroes where they're they they have this kind of a, a past. They all have a past, and then you know they're kind of they can be kind of a jerk here and there. And uh, you see that, in ha- especially with whatever whatever happened with his relationship with Marion in the past. And I like that he seems to be someone who is far more comfortable and at ease when he's, you know, out on these adventures finding uh, lost uh, lost uh, items in these booby trap tombs. And like when he gets back to his real job at, as a professor, he just he seems so kind of awkward and out of place. Like he's, he has absolutely no idea what to do when one of his students is flirting with him kind of thing. And uh, I think it's, I, I love how easily um, Harrison Ford could just switch between the two. Uh, just, you know, whether he's the, comp- the highly competent uh, adventurer or kind of the, the meek professor who's just kind of just doing his job and doesn't entirely feel it. Uh, feel at home there it's like it's like the second job is almost how he supports his first one it's it's where he does all of his studying from um and kind of on the subject a little bit something i love about this movie is the way it introduces us to the character and you know in a sense like this kind of the world that it's creating um from like the slow reveal of indiana jones at first in the jungle, you know, we, we see the whip, we see his hands reading the map, we see his hat, and finally he walks out, he steps out from the shadows and we see him, and we get this perfect, just fully isolated, almost, mini-adventure that we get to see from start to finish, and it tells us what we think is everything we need to know about this character. And then we cut to him as the professor, and it's we, we see, you know, what his, what his day job looks like. Um, and we, we never get the lines of like, hey, my name is Indiana Jones and I'm a prophet. Like, it, it drops us into the middle of an adventure and then it drops us into the middle of him teaching. And it's introducing us to him in ways that just feel incredibly organic. Um, so that by the time, you know, the, the government agents are telling him about, you know, the Nazis looking for Ravenwood. We feel like we're completely caught up on who he is as a character just because of how well it introduces us to him 
in in the situation he's in and Harrison Ford's acting, it all works together without any sort of sloppy exposition or anything like that. Yeah, this is something we we all we often bring up, but just there's such a sense of history to this film. Um, you know, we we come up, we come up to him, he's in the middle of his job, and then you know, uh, Brody kind of just walks in without an introduction, and they just have a, you know have a conversation. And I, I I love like the character of Brody. He's only in you know a couple scenes, but yet we totally buy this lifelong friendship that he's had with, with Indiana. Um, and just the, or, or his our relationship with Mary and just, we know something ha- happened between them. We're not given all the details, but they just have this, you know, this chemistry that you know tells us they've known each other for a long time. And there's just that feeling to the whole thing that we are stepping into a completely uh, existing world. And obviously, I guess I do want to talk about Marion. I think she's just a really great character. Um, you know, we see her in the opening. She's obviously been through a lot of hard times and I guess almost kind of abandoned somewhere in Mongolia or whatever. But she's, you see, she's kind of, she's carved out a life for, a life for herself. She has this bar and she's, and she's, you know, she does these drinking games to make more money and she just seems to be very, very very self-sufficient there. And I like that they, they, they even though, you know, obviously they have the other damsel in distress moments, she is always working towards helping achieve their goal together. Like, and she's always, you know, just somewhere, somewhere behind the scenes, even if Indiana Jones in the foreground, she's always doing something to help what's going on. And she's just a really fun character to watch. She has really, really good chemistry with, uh, with Harrison Ford. Um, and uh, it's going to really uh, show into stark relief uh, the unfortunate one of the more unfortunate aspects in Temple of Doom next week. Yeah, she's she was my uh, well, I, I love her, and I forget the actress, but the or now the character's name, but the one from Last Crusade is also great. But I think in terms of actual character, Marion's my favorite. Um, and what I like is that yes, even though she does find herself in the like I guess as a damsel in distress. Not only is she like working towards their girl, their goal as a group is she, she's never just waiting to be rescued. You know whether it's a scene with her captured by Belloc, and you know she's you know putting on the dress to, uh, to use the, her clothes to hide the knife, um, and using her skills in drinking games to try to <laughs> um, put Belloc off balance. She's always doing something or like or like, you're know, saving indiana's life in the, the fight around the plane where she knocked out the pilot who's about to shoot him yeah and and so i i think also just as a character indiana jones just gets beat up a lot and so between him really having his butt handed to him frequently throughout the movie and the fact that she gets her moments to save him moments of her being captured they don't they don't feel like insulting because really both characters have saved each other at one time or another. And both characters, you know, have been in need of saving and have been put through the ring. It's just, it feels like both characters really, in a, to a large extent, are kind of action stars. And they're always working together towards the same goal. And even though, like, Indiana Jones is the title character, so obviously we spend more time with him and his adventures and what he's doing in the scene. They... They do have an interesting dynamic where it's not always him having to go and save her. 
Um, and so I just think both characters were written in a really smart way to ever av- to avoid falling into that kind of typical genre pitfall, I guess. Yeah, I, I like how you mentioned how Indiana Jones is always getting hurt. And I think that's, in a weird way, one of my favorite aspects of this uh, film is, or in the series, is just how, how human he is. Like, he he's not particularly skilled or particularly strong. He's you know, he, just, he constantly gets hurt. He's always getting beat up. But it's kind of just the, what makes him special is he 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 always just gets back up and he just keeps going and he's and he's you know willing to constantly put his life on the line and do that one really stupid thing to get what he wants. Um, so he's a very in- entertaining character to follow. I think a uh, John McClane in the Die Hard series is something that was. He's someone who's built off that you know very same mold, just somebody who's constantly getting hurt, but they're special simply because they'll get up and keep going. Yeah, and one of the areas I think that kind of helps the film is that it does ground it a little bit more to where he's not just this huge jaw with giant biceps who's punching his way to victory. He does feel like this very gruff adventurer who who's already probably been hit about a thousand times before the camera <laughs> even starts rolling by the beginning of the movie. Um, and I think uh, Harrison Ford just has pretty much perfect comedic timing to where they can use him getting beaten up to make the scene more serious or just for like some really funny moments like with the, the giant guy who ends up having to be taken out with the airplane propellers. This is you know, you keep hitting him and nothing happens and he hits you and you're down. Um, and so the, the expression of Harrison's face every single time he gets hit, it's like it hurts, but you can't help but almost chuckle because of how like taken aback he is, he is by the strength of the guy. Yeah, while watching, I wrote in my notes, I, I love how Harrison Ford takes a punch. Yeah, he's, he makes literally any action endlessly entertaining. And there's a way, like... The way he moves, it doesn't feel like you know he's practicing choreographing scene. There's something just so scrappy and gangly in how he moves around, whether it be in fights or the way he'll jump off of a horse onto a truck. It's just it always feels like he's you know he's holding on by his last thread every moment and just barely getting by. It's it's yeah. really it's you know he's kind of building off you know the Arnold Schwarzeneggers and the Sylvester Stallone kind of heroes of the '80s. You know these perfect specimens of masculinity who can who are just absolutely great at everything i i like how spielberg moved into this much much more real and relatable kind of hero and i i think you know spielberg talks about how he storyboards a lot and so it's just really impressive how he can use storyboards to make a character look like he's winging it because that's (laughs) what it feels like the entire time i feel like Indy spends so much of the movie, at least in like scenes during fights, like just on the ground, you know, crawling under the plane, crawling from here to here. You know, as we see in Last Crusade, you know, crawling across tanks. He's just always trying to get away and to get to something else and, you know, jumping onto trucks, jumping from here to there. It, it always feels like he's every effort he makes is a last ditch effort. But it's so, it's all pre-staged and pre-planned and but it never feels that way, and I mean that like as the best compliment. Yeah, um, a, a, a lot of the characters in this are really good. The, the villain Belloc is, I think, I mean he's not a really deep character, but he's way more dimensional than he needed to be. Um, what 
I, he, he used to confuse me, but I think, I think basically what he is is he's Indiana Jones without any sense of inhibition or, or morals. You know, he's the, he's the guy who will make a deal with the devil to get the same thing. But yet you see that he has every bit as much love and fascination uh, of, you know, in what he does as uh, Indiana has. And I think their, their rivalry is really fun to watch. Yeah, I love it when a movie gives its villain almost the exact same goal as its hero because a lot of the time what it allows it to do is it highlights the character traits of the hero just as much as the villain because we're able to see someone who wants the same thing and you know we can tell so much about the characters based on how their actions differentiate because if they're both going towards the same thing then whatever action they take says a lot about them. Um, and so, yeah, Belloc almost feels like the, the higher class, but infinitely more sleazy kind of Indiana Jones, who's always, you know, instead of being the one who's down in the dirt himself, um, he's kind of willing to piggyback off of someone else or use his money to the same effect or things like that. But yeah, you know, when he, in discussions about the arc, um, in the restaurant, you know, you see it in his eyes that, it it's more than just about the money for him. There is there is a legitimate shared desire between the two to discover these things of the past. So like you said, yeah, he's it's not like we get this incredible detailed art, but he is a human. He's a very he's a very well written character that convinces me that this is a legitimate person. He's not just filling in the necessary villain role. Yeah, you get the sense that he really doesn't couldn't care less about the Nazis or what they want. You know, everything that he does, like all all the bad things he does, are simply you know a means to the end of discovering this this power, this um, you know, and learn and just knowledge. Um, and uh, I really like that. I, th- I think the actor who plays him, I, f- I forget uh, who he is off the top of my head, but he, he Paul Freeman. Yeah, Paul Freeman. Yeah, he, he's he's just really good and and <laughs> weirdly likable. I mean, and even he, like, in the scenes with Marion, which is uh, are very weird. Um, like, you, I can't tell if he actually likes her, or if he just kind of wants her as a hostage so he can use her after they're done here. But they they they, they, they play off each other very well. And I, I like I love the scene where where she's obviously manipulating him, and he's he. I don't. I don't think he's at all aware of what's going on. And it's funny, a lot of that scene is actually kind of improvised and they were they were thinking of what would what kind of elevates this scene above just the typical hostage scene and so like the the dress and the knife, a lot of it was just them coming up with ideas on the spot. Um, <laughs> and I love his laugh when he see when she pulls out the knife and they just both burst out laughing. <laughs> it's it's a really like that that proves one of the one of the ways in which this movie works is as great of a character as Indy is, like all of the characters are so great that we can have scenes in which he has nothing to do with and we're still completely entertained. Um, and what I like about Belloc too is despite the fact that he's probably willing to kill, and I mean, I think we know it, willing to kill Indy and Marion at the drop of the hat, there's still a weird almost sense of respect, I feel like. Um Oh, definitely, yeah. You know, they, they're they both going after the exact same thing. And I think every time Indy makes a discovery that he didn't, you know, there's a level of admiration he has towards him. And I, I definitely think seeing Marion try to escape, he's 
he's kind of impressed at at least at her ambition and boldness. Um, and so it's it's always fun just seeing the way he reacts to the scenes. The fact that he's not just this one-dimensional villain. Um, and I I also really like Ronald Lacey. Um, Which one's he? As, uh, I can't remember the character's name. He's the German who gets his hand burned. Creepy German guy. Yeah, the, the, the guy who essentially created that kind of character that's been mimicked in <laughs> endless movies since. Um, the evil German scientist who's not a scientist in this one, actually. Yeah, it's funny. We've, we've essentially seen just all the different kind of variations of this character since this movie came out. Yeah. And his name um, is Arnold Toth. And yeah, I'm not sure if we do hear that in the movie, but um, kind of like Belloc, he's, he's another character that, you know, isn't huge, like hugely fleshed out, but he's still kind of more interesting than the film had to make him. He, he is the evil one who just enjoys being evil, but he's still fun to watch. Yeah, and I, I feel like a character like that, you, there's definitely kind of a of a line you have to walk. Because it, it's super easy to just have him be boring. But I, I feel like if you if you have that kind of character who's just, he is the evil character, he really does just exist to be an antagonist. You kind of get away with that if you cast the right actor and give him enough personality. And I think that this movie did. Because uh, there's there's plenty of moments throughout where it's just... This moment's kind of iconic now. And he's part of the reason. You know, I, as he shows the burn mark on his hand, I feel like just that still image. Any, any lover of film is going to know that the second they see it. Or the, uh, the the coat hanger slash possible torture device, which Spielberg said was actually a gag from 1941 that he wasn't able to use there, so he brought it over into this, and it's it's just perfect. That might be like a good segue into something else that I really love about this movie, which is just the the tone of it. Um, I think this movie just strikes the perfect balance between you know a, a dramatic adventure with the more lighthearted kind of adventure um, to where it, it takes its characters completely seriously and it takes its plot seriously. Um, obviously by the end of the movie, you know, it kind of get, it gets really dark <laughs> and creepy, especially for a kid, but it, it finds time to inject these really fantastic moments of humor. Um, and it does so without ever undermining the dramatic tension, you know, when he comes in and he pulls out what looks like something he may use for torture, and it's just a just a hanger. Um, Marion's still in danger. She's still captured by the end of that scene, and we don't really feel any more secure by the end of it, but we still found time to laugh. And so the drama of the scene is still completely intact, but we still found a way to give it personality and to laugh. And, you know, with movies or with, with moments like the... <laughs> The guy showing off his skills as a swordsman and then getting shot. The purpose of that scene still exists and immediately after we're still in this fun chase scene. And so just throughout the whole film, it there's always this beautiful balance of there is something we, we need to be focusing on. There's drama, 
Um, there's action. There's something pushing the plot forward. And it's it always finds ways to include humor in a way that's organic and never undercuts what's happening. Yeah, I, I just I think so much of that is the that our heroes really have to work hard for every single victory. Like Indiana, he loses two or three times for every time he wins. Um, like you think of the truck chase, he's he's the one that gets thrown through the windshield and dragged beneath the car. Um, so yeah, it, it earns every victory is kind of earned through all these the blood, sweat, and tears. Um, and it, it makes it so much more satisfying than you know the hero who wins every time. <laughs> and I and I, I think it also goes into you know how they they you know just undermine so constantly undermine the genre expectations, be it the coat hanger or the the uh, the swordsman, or you know. <laughs> one, I think one of the funniest scenes of the film is um after Indiana and Marion are on the on the, the smuggler's ship, and what would have in any other film you have know, been the triumphant sex scene between the hero and heroine is <laughs> Indiana on a bed just moaning about how bad how bad he's hurt. <laughs> And when Mary's like, okay, where does it hurt? And he just goes, here, and points at himself. I love how absolutely grumpy he is at that moment. Yeah, Harrison Ford is really underrated, just has a comedic actor. Yeah, and that's, that's what's weird. It's weird to say Harrison Ford is underrated, but I, I do think he just, he's so effortlessly charming and funny while still being like, while, while still epitomizing manliness. Um and I think this more than any other role kind of shows that. And th- there's so much about how this film is just built. Uh, I think it's really influenced uh, just the action genre as a whole. Um, it's You can tell as to how, you know, Lucas and Spielberg were on board for the entire writing process and they were storyboarding all the action sequences and, and uh, you know, weaving them into the script. And you can really tell it's this style of a kind of set piece driven storytelling um, that is kind of, completely the norm in blockbusters nowadays and you you could tell when it's done badly because it feels like it feels like the entire film when it's done poorly the entire film is just existing to set up the next action scene and then have the next action scene and that's all it has but i think yeah when it's done right when the um creative when the creatives are on board the whole time i think you could weave it you weave you can weave them into the story in a really seamless way that i think and it, i think this is one of the best examples of doing that within this genre of just having every action beat have a very clear story purpose and often they're often character driven and it just it it makes it makes everything in the film so much more personal and just if when the action beats are aren't just kind of thrown around because oh hey it's an action movie it has to have action it just it feels like every piece is an indispensable part of the, the puzzle for the entire film and Spielberg is is just an expert at, at you know building and pacing his films, and I think this is where he really he's really showing off his chops in that. Yeah, and I, I think another reason that it, they work so well in this movie is just because of how they relate to the character. Like these set pieces almost help define who he is. This is the guy that you know takes the treasure and has to run away from the giant boulder. This is the guy who's willing to jump from the horse onto the truck and be dragged across and fight someone under the propellers of an airplane. Like these are all big action set pieces that are fun and awesome to look at in and of themselves. But it says a lot about the character that this is, you know, apart from his day job as a professor, this is who he is. This is, this is what he spends his time doing. Um, and so they just feel very, 
as big as they are, they feel very intimate because they they help define who he is. Yeah, and you get the feeling at the end, like even if the Nazis had not captured Marion, that he would have followed them onto that that not, the evil Nazi lair island or whatever. He would have stuck this journey out all the way till the end, no matter how the danger. Because that's just who he is. And you have that you know that wonderful monologue from Belloc, you know, just talking about how Indiana Jones he, he needs to see that, and like he he calls his bluff about destroying the Ark. Is I, I I just love how completely driven he is as a character yeah he he's got very clear motivations and these big action set pieces kind of help solidify them like we know to what extent he's willing to do this and like i said they all just work to help create who he is and it because of how well it establishes who he is it's never contradictory when he does these death-defying stunts or or whatever he's doing. It, it always makes sense because it's always very character-based. And then obviously another element that really <laughs> helps this film be iconic is John Williams' score. Um, the, 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 just the main theme alone. Even if he, the rest of the score wasn't perfectly built into the film, that main theme is so incredible. Um, just how it, it perfectly captures the character, and yet it's, it's built... It's, it's like it's built... To be memorable, you know, like the Star, like Star Wars, like or the Imperial March. It's just something that just gets under your skin in, in the best possible way. And you will be humming this for the rest of the day after you see this movie. I don't care who you are. It, you know, we were, we were on recently with Chad on the Cinescope podcast talking about Back to the Future. And whenever I was writing my notes for the show and I got to the score, it kind of reminded me of my thoughts to that where it's, you know, the, the film score as a whole is is very good, but really it's this theme is what we're all remembering. And like Back to the Future, the movie knows when to use it. It never outstays its welcome. It's not too infrequent. Um, it's and, and it perfectly captures the entire spirit of the movie. Like in the in the few notes in the actual theme, Williams finds a way to convey everything this movie is about in it. It's adventurous. It's not too like comically lighthearted. It's not too dramatic. It's just, it perfectly captures, captures like the spirit of real adventure. Um, and yeah, you're, you're going to hum it. Yeah. I think you go up to anyone on the street and they will immediately off the top of their head, be able to, to hum this tune. It's, it's, it's the very definition of an iconic score. And beyond that, it just beautifully fits the movie. I was like, you're watching the opening sequence. I, I'm not sure if it was Williams or Ben Bird who did this, but I love how the music is like built into the, uh, to the sound design for the entire jungle. It just feels like a, a part of that setting. And like each and every setting has its own style of sound that just, you know, builds the, the romance and mystery of, of, of what, of the adventure and, you know, gets, gets you into each and every scene. And it's just, it's just a, a beautiful score on every level. Yeah. You know, Williams will use, you know, the full orchestra. And so even outside of just this, the iconic theme, it kind of, it almost harkens back to the, the kind of classics before where, we always have this great, huge theme or music always driving the action. Um, 
And so it, it feels kind of, well, now, especially with Indiana Jones itself being a classic in its own right, you know, it, it found a way to be distinct to itself while paying homage to music before. And now with it being, you know, like, as it was created in the, almost 40 years ago now, now the, the, its blend of modern and classic has made itself a classic. Mm-hmm. And there's one, one thing I think, like uh, John Williams' Star Wars and Howard Shore's Lord of the Rings, I think the best, uh, probably best examples of doing this is where you kind of, you create a sound for this film and like every musical cue, even though it's all its own distinctive uh, themes and motifs, still kind of like comes into line with the musical sound that has been, that has been given to this particular, uh, to this particular property. And I think, well, I don't think the sound is as iconic as say Star Wars. I think it's still, there's very much a, a, a pervasive style throughout the series that is kind of in every single musical cue. Yeah, definitely. It, we never, the sound never feels contradictory. It's always, like you said, in line with things we've heard, even as it adds new stuff, it still fits the the film. So, you know, whether the, the music is meant to sound romantic or adventurous or sad, it's, it always feels cohesive. Yeah. Um, as, as I mentioned before, I, I find this film's treatment or exploration of like the supernatural very interesting because aside from a few key moments, this film seems to be almost entirely secular. And yet, like it, I, I like the scene where um, you know, where the government agents approach him and Brody, and they're just like, "Oh yeah, everyone knows the Ark of the Covenant has all these special powers, and if Hitler had it, obviously he'd be unstoppable. He have the power of God behind him." It's like, <laughs> but yet the whole film just kind of exists in this almost kind of secular space. Um, except for the, the then, the, I'm not sure if that was intentional. Like then, the, as it goes, there are kind of key moments, like when um. When they're up on the top of the hill, uh, digging into the uh, to the the well of souls, I think is that what, is that what it's called? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, the, the lightning storm comes up, or or the moment when he uh, when he's got the the stick and he's trying in the, in the map room, and the wind kind of rises. Like you, can, I think as the film goes, you can kind of feel the supernatural kind of creeping in a bit more until finally the ending, where it just everything gets crazy. Um. Now I'm not, I'm not I'm not I'm not sure how intentional that slow build was, but it it almost feels like the this the spiritual idea was far more Luke was kind of more Lucas, and it seemed that Spielberg was more interested in the adventure. Uh, did, did that kind of disconnect uh, stand out to you at all? Uh, I'm not sure. To me, it felt very intentional to me because you can almost see it in all of the films, where which is one of the reasons. It, the, the films kind of feel weird. Indy always kind of seems taken aback when he sees stuff like this. It's like, wait, you've seen it like three times at this point. Um, but it almost always start, feels like we're starting out in just a, a typical adventure. And then we're, we're introduced to this, you know, paranormal or spiritual kind of object um, that transcends, you know, things that we know. Uh, you you have it in Raiders whenever they first start talking about the Ark, and as they bring it up, you know Brody the way Brody speaks about it, there's clear like reverence and uh, the music slowly creeping in. 
Like we're meant to understand that this is a big deal. And then the further we get into the movie, the more and more prevalent that becomes. I mean, you kind of see the exact same thing in Last Crusade, which is... Um, well, I was actually going to mention that. I think Last Crusade much more seamlessly weaves in the, the spiritual aspects into the film's themes uh, and tone, like from step one. Yeah, I think it's, you know... Like, it, it, the, the ending doesn't seem nearly as out of the blue as, say, uh, Raiders does. But I think, to me, it feels very intentional coming out of the blue in Raiders because we've we've had multiple conversations about it up to that point. You know, at the, the very beginning um, with Brody and the agents and then even scenes with them in, in the restaurant with, between he and Belloc as Belloc talks to him about the arc. Like, we we keep hearing about it. Um, but we're still very, we're still grounded in this adventure. And then by the end, when we actually get to visualize and see this arc, that's when things start happening. Um, and so I, I never really felt a, a disconnect. Um, most of it felt like this was exactly what they were going for, where we start off with this lighthearted adventure with kind of rumblings of something bigger and then whenever it finally comes at the end, it hits you. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. It's just something that, that really stood out this particular viewing. But I do like the kind of the sense of awe the film leaves you with at the end. Like all of the Nazis are all melted and blown up and then just the lid falls back on and it's just kind of quiet. And then the, the perfect ending as the arc is put into this <laughs> this gigantic uh, room, I guess Area 51, this room full of boxes. Um it does, it does kind of leave you with a kind of a sense of awe and respect. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's, it, it is something that makes, I think it does make it stand out a bit from a lot of the other adventure uh, stories that came before and after. Uh, just a couple more things I wanted to mention is uh, uh, John Reese davies as Sala. Uh, I, I, I just love John Reese davies I think he's, he's such a likable, you know, lovable presence. Like, whether it's even if he's in a small role like here or, you know, as Gimli in Lord of the Rings, you know, he, just, he just kind of exudes, uh, you know, warmth. Um, and you just, you know, you, you, you feel that sense of history and friendship between him and Indiana Jones. Uh, I love that he just has like kids running around his house all over the place. Even like he's, he's he, you know, he kind of comes here and then he goes, but he still, you know, as a, as a kind of a small side character, he really leaves his mark. And I, I just love his reaction to being a, Kissed by Marion, which would probably be, I think, any guy's reaction just about. <laughs> yeah, I, it's kind of impossible to dislike him. I mean, you just hear his giant, hearty belly laugh, and you can't help but just want to hug him. Uh, it's he, he Between this and Gimli, he almost just exudes this idea of, like, friendship and loyalty. Like, of anybody you'd ever want by your side, it's, it's him. Um, and I love... This kind of goes back to how how well the movie is able to strike a balance between the seriousness of its subject and and humor. Um, I love the way he kind of reacts to the situation. You know, asp, very dangerous. You go first. It's <laughs> you know it, that's almost how the movie is saying. Like this scene is going to be you know on the edge of your seat. It's going to be falling into a pit of snakes. And so it's like it's not undermining the fact that this is going to be a really intense and great scene. 
but he's still funny and in watching him kind of react to the world that Indiana Jones almost regularly inhabits um I just I it's it's not an enormous presence but I I love his presence in the movie and it can be felt in a really big way yeah I, I kind of want an entire movie just about that the smugglers crew <laughs> on that ship I just yeah, the, the the way the captain reacts to being bored is constantly you know kind of trying to build his own story of what happened uh, it's just yeah it's, it's just it makes the world re, uh so much so much more interesting when you have great side characters and I really just got to go back to Spielberg's direction. That is that is what makes this series what it is. Um, in every film, you know, even his not so great ones, the dude's sense of staging and just the way he builds scenes, even if it's just dialogue. Like, I love how he shoots. He often will shoot a dialogue scene kind of in one take, just following the characters as they move around, like cr- creating like three or four different compositions within each scene. But what one thing I think is really cool and admirable is that there's there's no ego or anything in how he directs his long takes. Like he will just cut right into an insert in the middle of his you know his his scene and then just cut right back out to the wide shot. Like he's he's anything he does is cuz he cuz he thinks that that's the best thing for this scene. It's not just like oh, I'm trying to create long takes because they're cool. You I the way he does it, I think just makes gives the scene energy and um and gives it a nice sense of flow but as i said you know he he will he will do something else if he thinks that's what's best for that moment um and then just the setups and payoffs in the way he directs scenes like every element that's going to come into play later is, is is shown you know beforehand and so just as the scene is built as different things happen like a beautiful instance of that is the entire is the scene going into uh into the, uh, the the whatever that tomb whatever is in the, uh, the temple in the opening sequence in in the jungle, like all of the danger, every single one of the dangers that Indiana is facing as he runs out is all kind of set up in the, in the beginning as they walk in. It's just, I uh, just it makes each and every scene so much. It feels like you are a part of it because you are you know seeing these elements that will come into play later. Um, and I think another brilliant piece of storytelling is the uh, the travel montages. Well, they just kind of have the plane going from place to place as the the theme plays. It's so great because it it just it, it gets you up in the spirit of travel and adventure. Like you, that that that's, that's a big thing that they, they, the directors were going for, or the director was going for it when they made this film was to try and to make one of those epics that allows you to explore the world without without ever having to leave your couch. Um, and I think that, that, but also what it does is it gives you a sense of geography, like. You know, you always know exactly where these people are and where they're going. And I think uh, like the uh, the Game of Thrones opening cre- credits, uh, where you, we flash around the map everywhere we're going to be, I think is kind of the ha- that same idea. Or um, like the the map scenes in Lord of the Rings, where everyone kind of stands over a map, points out where they are. I think it, it does goes a long way to making your world feel real if you kind of bring the characters in to knowing uh, where they are um, in this world. Yeah, and it's crazy how how simplistic it kind of is, and how iconic it becomes. Where it's we're really just following a red line as it traces from here to there. But you know, the music and the music almost acknowledging where we're going from. Um, I think this is more of Last Crusade, but the idea is still the same here. You know, in Last Crusade, as they as they go to Germany, the closer the red line gets there, the music changes and it becomes darker and. 
there's there's moments like that in uh, Raiders as well, where it's just it every all of the elements of film are always working together, and so you know we we see this plane kind of um, faded out in the back as it travels from here to there, and we see where we're going from, and the music is acknowledging it, and it all works together to where they even like technically we're we're really just cutting from this scene to that scene in this other location, but by inserting this between that. It it feels like we're really moving and we're it, it it creates this sense of scale and epicness, and in reality, it's literally just us tracing a, a red line from a map. But because of how how stylistic it is, um, it really does kind of evoke this sense of you know globe trotting adventure. Yeah, I remember. So, is there anything else you wanted to mention before we move into kind of talking about what the legacy this film has had? Ah, uh, I think I'm ready. All right, so uh, on release in theaters, it grossed uh, $384 million on its $18 million budget. Um, it's actually, it's, it's still in, it's in one of the, yeah, it's one of the 25 highest grossing films of all time, you know, adjusted for inflation, which is pretty impressive. It was nominated for uh, nine Academy Awards, Best Picture, Director, Art Direction, Cinematography, Editing, Score, Sound, Sound Effects, Editing, and Visual Effects, and it won five art direction, editing, sound, uh, sound editing, and visual effects. Um, it's kind of crazy to think that you know, such a, just a pure adventure genre film could get so many uh, nominations back then. Yeah, you know, be- between the Academy being willing to nominate that and then nominate Star Wars for as much um, awards as it was, like, it did seem... You know, like they they were just looking at films objectively, and with I'm hopeful, you know, with Mad Max getting nominated for everything it was that they're they're more inclined to look at at the movie itself outside of the genre. But yeah, it, looking at everything it was nominated here for, it earned all of this. Um, everything about all of these different um, categories, you can see genuine quality here. And I think that's something that the Academy is lacking. You know, people talk about how, how disconnected the Academy is these days, you know, from <laughs> movies that people actually watch. And I, I, I really don't like the way that critics, you know, treat genre filmmaking as if it's somehow inherently lesser if it's not a drama. I think it's a very shallow way of, of looking at film. Yeah. And it- What's what's weird not to go off on a tangent? It's just it's weird because often they end they still end up being the highest reviewed films of the year. You know, we have so many just action adventure movies and comic book movies and things like that getting in. You know, the '90s and Rotten Tomatoes, everybody loves them, and then it's it's dramas that were released in like five theaters getting nominated for all the big things. But um, no, I, I I think there's a shift. You know, with with things like Mad Max and um, oh, there was something else, but there there have been a few movies that have lifted my spirits in regard to the Academy. Yeah, um, and then obviously this is a series. It has a uh, three sequels, and supposedly one is coming. Um, although that's that's basically been rumored since uh, Last Crusade, uh, not Last Crusade, the uh, the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull came out. So I'm not. It did seem like there were some pretty big developments uh, at the beginning of this year, um, though I, it's been pretty quiet. Uh, do you know where that is exactly? 
um, I want to say I read something fairly recently where there, there wasn't any real news that was shared, but it was it was once again confirmed. And I mean, I, I believe it just because while Star Wars is definitely enough to kind of make up for their $4 billion purchase, <laughs> you, you don't buy Lucasfilm and not use Indiana Jones. And so, you know, Indiana Jones was rumored for the same way Episode 7 was rumored before Disney was like, oh, it'll happen. We're just kind of waiting. And then I think Disney came in and with them really investing so heavily in Star Wars, I think it's only a matter of time. And, and they seem very adamant about a 2020 release. So we'll see. Yeah, it's, it's supposedly it's, I guess, Spielberg has the post coming out at the end of this year, then Ready Player One. And supposedly the uh, Indiana Jones 5 will be his next film after Ready Player One. Um, I'm... I'm guessing that they're not going to be inviting uh, Shia LaBeouf back. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. And uh, did you ever see the the young Indiana Jones Chronicles? Um, I watched about five minutes of the episode of episode one uh, after coming out of Raiders, and I I don't think I'll watch any more of it. It doesn't seem very good. But it it, it, it ran for about two years. Um, well, uh, Lucas actually. St- you know, speaks very reverently about that show. I mean, I guess it would make sense considering he was kind of like the big, the the mind behind it. But I, I haven't really seen um, a significant portion of it, so I can't really speak to its quality. Yeah, I'm actually, I think I'm, the yeah, director, uh, what's his name, uh, Joe Johnson, actually got his start directing on that series. Oh, it kind of makes sense based on who he is as a director. Um. And just, you know, uh, this film has had a broad impact on just filmmaking as a whole. I think there's a several series, you know, the, the Mummy remake series with Brendan Fraser could very easily be Indiana Jones. Uh, Lara Croft is basically female Indiana Jones. Uh, then you have the the Uncharted video game. And National Treasure also definitely owes a lot to this series. And essentially, any time someone makes basically an adventure film that has anything remotely to do with archaeology or treasure hunting... Yeah, everyone says, you know, yeah, it's kind of an Indiana Jones type film. It's like this, this, this series has basically defined that 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 subgenre. Yeah, I'm, I would, I would dare you to find one review of movies like Sahara that don't in some way bring up Indiana Jones. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just kind of woven into the DNA, even beyond just the archaeology types, just how adventure films are are built. There's so much of just the way. Uh, Spielberg and Lucas crafted this movie that that I think between you know this and Star Wars and it, it just you know it brought back that desire for these big open-hearted adventure films and it's, it's it, you still see uh, movies like that being made and, and as as odd as the connection may seem James Wan seems to cite Indiana Jones as one of the biggest influences on Aquaman coming up so it's it's definitely moving outside of the the films you would assume, of course, that that was inspired by Indiana Jones, but just the way they're able to create these set piece, these character driven set pieces, you know, it it really has inspired um, filmmakers making movies that you might not even see any sort of real resemblance or connection. Yeah, and Raiders of the Lost Ark will is usually like top five in any list of you know greatest action films of all time. Uh, Raiders will be very high up on there, and it's also uh, on a lot of the you know, greatest films of all times list. And I, you know, looking at its its uh, influence, it definitely deserves that. And uh, unfortunately, you know, much to uh, 
Harrison Ford should grin. It's it's his second most iconic role. Yeah. Um, which is, it's kind of funny. You know, there's there's always kind of debates going on as to who's the better character. And it's just funny knowing that the man who plays both has a very decided answer on that. <laughs> and the rest, the, well, I... I I think, you know, if someone asks, you know, who's Harrison Ford, I think the first is usually Han Solo, then Indiana Jones. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, he deserves the credit for both roles. They're both absolutely amazing. Yeah. And then just to continue talking about its legacy, it, it's it's moved beyond just the way it's influenced other movies and directors and stuff, but it's just embedded itself in pop culture, you know, like... As as you mentioned earlier with Uncharted, there's a a video game series that that shares its identity in a lot of ways with Indiana Jones, and I think you know that they'd be very honest uh, talking about its influence. And then one of the things that, that Spielberg is very very proud of is the fact that you can see the silhouette of Indiana Jones and you know who it is. Um, anybody mm-hmm. on the street, and then you know things like his. His theme, everybody would know. And it seems like if a show or movie ever references the Ark of the Covenant, Indiana Jones is going to get brought up just as quickly as the Bible would be. Um, and so, and with this kind of happening early in both Ford and Spielberg's career, it, it to me, really helped further cement them as talents that were going to be going to be here to stay. You know, they're gonna they're gonna yeah. be referenced with the rest of the top men. And, and according to Spielberg, Raiders is like uh, one of the very few of his films that he can actually just sit down and watch and enjoy without, you know, constantly analyzing what he did there. All right. So is there anything else you uh, you wanted to mention about this film? Maybe whether about the film itself or its legacy before you uh, move on out? Um, I guess lastly, it's just one of the things that is really, that I think is special about this movie is this, this is a movie that kind of everybody seems to love. You know, when we talk about, the way it's remembered by critics and the way it's remembered by audiences, it's, it seems like there's there's no disconnect between the two. You know, it, it's praise from people who just want to sit down and have a good time and are just fans of, of watching fun movies. And it's praised by people whose job it is to look at the more critical aspects of movies. Um, it's just, it's pretty much unanimously praised by everyone. And I just think that that's an incredibly commendable achievement to be, so much fun and entertaining while still being a remarkable technical achievement. You know, it, it's, it really has earned the legacy, this huge legacy it's created. Yeah. It's just one of those films that every studio is always trying to make one of those, you know, all that just pleases all quadrants. And unfortunately they try too hard and <laughs> that's the, a lot of the problems with the blockbusters, but it's just something about this film just, worked with the public consciousness and it's 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 staying power is is that you know it's still talked about all right um so uh for next week uh for temple of doom we'll be uh, having uh eric skorzenski uh on again he joins us back for the uh, underrated episode on a nightmare the uh, nightmare on elm street remake uh and that was that was a great discussion so i'm really looking forward to having him on even though i i don't much like that film uh to be perfectly honest uh, I, I, I'm willing to have him convince me. Yes. Uh, the moment you claim that it it was worse than Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, I I was a bit taken aback, to be completely honest. But <laughs> I guess I'll try to hear you out next week. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, it's gonna be fun. So, until next week, when Gabe tries to convince us that Temple of Doom isn't just a great amount of fun, <laughs> we will see you next time. Which I will. <laughs>